Actually, there's only one description of him in the Old Testament in his earthly life. Isaiah said, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. That doesn't mean he was ugly or anything like that. It just means, just means that there was nothing outwardly that would have drawn people to him and say, I want to follow you. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the Revelation, Pastor Carl has so far given a brief overview and outline of the book, noting that chapter 1 deals with the past, chapters 2 and 3 the time frame around the writing of the book, and the rest of the book being prophetic in its overall scope. As we pick up in chapter 1, verses 9 to 18, we find the Apostle John indicating in verse 10 that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And as we pick up, Dr. Brogy explains which day is the Lord's Day and how we came about worshiping on Sundays rather than on Saturday, which was the Sabbath observed by the Jews of that era and still observed today. There is still one day in seven that God's people are to honor. But now we honor the first day of the week in honor of the resurrected Christ. Ignatius, 15 years after John gives us the revelation, writes this. The Christians cease to keep the Jewish Sabbath and live by the Lord's day on which our life shines thanks to him. Pliny, the unbelieving Roman governor, wrote these words in 110 AD. The Christians gather on Sunday, the first day of the week, to sing praises to their Lord Jesus. Justin Martyr, a great church leader, 45 years later in 150 AD, wrote, We all hold this common gathering on Sunday, since it is the day when Jesus Christ our Savior rose from the dead. So when you hear all these conspiracists and these Seventh-day Adventists, I love them, but they're just wrong, and they come up with this stuff that the uh, Roman Catholic Church invented that we meet on Sunday. Or Constantine invented that we meet on the first day of the week. They know nothing of history and they know very little of their Bible. Not only do we have the picture of history hundreds of years before Constantine ever came, but we have the authority of the Word of God. We gather on Sunday and not Saturday, and it's not by accident that Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. It is not by accident that the first appearances he makes are on the first day of the week. It is not by accident that eight days later, bringing you back to the next Sunday, that he once again appears on the first day of the week. It is not by accident that 50 days later, and there should be a slide for this somewhere, come on, 50 days later, that um, the church is born on the day of Pentecost. It's born on a Sunday. In 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Paul said on your gathering on the first day of the week, that's when you bring your offering because that's when God's people worship. In Acts 20 and verse 7, they broke bread, they celebrated the Lord's table when on the first day of the week. So this is the Lord's day. Again, it's an adjective. You could render it the Lordian day. This is the first day of the week. This is Sunday when John is in the Spirit and God gives him this mighty, gigantic blessing. 
By the way, I hope that you are in the spirit of the Lord's day. I hope you're spirit-filled when you come here on a Sunday morning, that you're here to worship in spirit and in truth. And I know a lot of Christians just blow off Sunday. And some of you are watching me live stream in other countries, and I thank God for the technology. And I thank God for others on time zones that are planning to go to church later on, or maybe you've been. But some of our own people are at home in their Bacher lounger with their iced tea watching me, not because they're sick or unable to be here, not because they have sick kids, but because they chose to do it from the home. Listen, that's not God's way. That's not God's plan. You should be here on the Lord's Day gathering with God's people. Sunday has become a fun day in America. When I first came as your pastor, there were no soccer meets or gymnastic meets 25 years ago in Beaufort County, but within three or four years, they started doing it. You know, a Christian parent has a choice. When their child is in some baseball game Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, they should say to that child, we're not going because we're going to be with God's people. It takes a dad, it takes a man with some spiritual steel in his spine that helps his children to know what are important. And so he was in the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, maybe he had a trance like Peter did up on that rooftop on Simon the Tanner's house there in Joppa where he saw the sky open up and this magnificent sheet come down and God gave him that wonderful vision. Perhaps he experienced what the Apostle Paul had where he was caught up, he said, in the third heaven. He said it was so real. I don't know if I was literally physically there in heaven or if it was just a, a vision. That's how real it was. Or maybe he's doing, I hope, what you're doing. He was just worshiping in spirit and in truth as Jesus instructed us to. And it was in that context that God gave him the vision. However it happened, it happened on the Lord's day when he was in the Spirit. And by the way, this verse and many like it are a good reminder of the balance between the physical and the spiritual realm. He's on the island of Patmos. That's where he is physically. But he's there in the Spirit. When Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, who are at Colossae, or Colossae if you prefer. The Apostle Paul is writing to believers who live in the city of Colossae physically, while spiritually they are said to be in Christ. One speaks of their physical environment, the other word speaks of their spiritual environment. And it's important that we keep that balance of one not to the exclusion of the other. To be taken so much up with being in Christ, with our heavenly environment, you can ignore your earthly home and responsibilities. And so the saying is well taken. Some are so heavenly minded, they are no earthly good. And so they are so heavenly minded, they're here for the revelation, but they're a next door neighbor who's lost. They've never even given a thought to witness to that person, though they've lived there for 25 years. You are to have a balance between the physical and the spiritual. And if you're just so earthly minded and you don't keep your focus on the things above, you'll just become consumed with the material and the here and now and all your silly little hobbies to the exclusion of making an impact for Jesus Christ. So here's John in the spirit and he heard something behind him that he describes like a loud voice, like a trumpet. Look at verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. It's clear and it's striking. And the sound behind him, we were just introduced to him last week in verse 8, the Alpha and the Omega, 
But lest there be any doubt when we come to verse 17, he describes himself as the first and the last. And when we come to the end of the revelation in the 22nd chapter, he will use the same terms to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's interesting because the phrase the first and the last was a phrase that was used in the Old Testament to describe Yahweh. In Isaiah 44, 6, thus says the Lord. Notice all caps in the English text, meaning this is the word for Yahweh, not Elohim, or it's the word Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, and there is no God besides me. And then the title, the Alpha and the Omega, along with the first and the last, are both brought together in verse 17. The point is, is that this is none other that we're studying this morning than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, as we've already seen last time, and in a number of times all the way through this chapter, is giving the same expressions that are used of the Father. Why? Because to see the Son is to see the Father. They are equal in person. And so like a loud, authoritative trumpet that calls people to action, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. And then the words and the command in verse 11 are unmistakable. Notice, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, these are seven actual literal churches. These are not epics of church history. These are real churches. Here they are on a map. And you will see them in a horseshoe kind of configuration. And God willing, if Jesus doesn't come back first, we will go through all seven churches. We'll start down there in the left corner. We'll go up north, and then we'll come back to the southeast. Seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, I planted in your mind a few weeks ago, why seven? Why not 10? Why not 20? Why not 100? Why seven? Why not two? Why not three? And why these seven? Why not the church at Rome? Why not the church in Jerusalem? Why not that great missionary church, the church at Antioch? Why these seven? Well, among other things, and we will study it, seven is a number of completion and perfection. But why these seven? Well, hold on to your seat. We'll come to that in the second chapter, all right? Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. That's the command. This isn't John's idea. John didn't write this book to give some encouragement to the persecuted Christians where he said, you know, I see a need. I, Lord, I'd like to write this book. And, and God says, go ahead, write a book to those seven churches. They need your encouragement. No, it didn't happen that way. John had no choice in the matter. He has this vision of the glorified Christ and from the Father to the Son to an angel, an angel maybe like Gabriel who gave a vision to Daniel that we studied, to John, to the seven churches, and in essence to us today, we are reading it. But this was Jesus' idea. This was his thought. And so we saw those five stages of pure transmission of this message. It was communicated to John by God to these seven churches and what an encouragement it will be to them and what an encouragement will be to us because seven times over in the second and third chapter, he says, he that has an ear to hear, listen 
to what he says to the churches. This is not just written to Ephesus or Thyatira or Sardis or something. It's written to the people of Community Bible Church as well, and we would be wise to hear. So that's what John heard. Secondly, we need to consider what John saw, what he saw, beginning now in verse 12. This is a difficult section, so strap on your pew belt and hold on, all right? Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Seven churches that are spoken of here figuratively as seven lampstands. By the way, this is a good illustration of what I mentioned earlier, that the Bible is full of symbolism. But suppose that's just as far as we read. Someone might read that and say, well, I believe the seven golden lampstands represent the Roman Empire. Somebody else might say, well, I believe the Seven lampstands are analogous to the seven-headed beast in the book of Revelation chapter 13. Or someone else might say, well, I, I believe the seven lampstands stand for the, for the devil. And the seven lampstands, or somebody else might say, stands for an atomic bomb. And you go on and on and on. And there's some wacko stuff you can read about the book of Revelation. But remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And one of the reasons people have such difficulty with Revelation, one of the reasons it's virtually not even taught anymore, is because people no longer know their Old Testament. And so we saw there are 300 allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. Some would say 600, 700, 800. Well, if you want to double count a number of texts, but there are 300 allusions. That's 74% of the 404 verses found in the Revelation. But understand, a lot of Revelation interprets itself. If we just kept reading, you come to verse 20, look down there, it says, the seven lampstands are what? The seven churches. So we don't have to guess what the meaning of these seven lampstands are. We know what they stand for. And so when we interpret the symbol, we literally believe it. And notice that they are seven golden lampstands. That expresses their value. Because God's church was not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood of a lamb as unblemished, spotless, the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the metaphor here of a lampstand, really as we will see in the second and third chapter, speaks of the church's testimony. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and we are to bear that light. We're not the light, we're the light bearers. That's what a lampstand does, it bears the light. Jesus said, let men see your good works, that you might glorify your Father who's in heaven. In 1 Timothy 3, the apostle Paul said that the local church is the pillar and support of the truth. We bear the truth. That's what we are to do as lampstands. Like the moon, the moon doesn't have its own light. It reflects the light of the sun. And we are borrowed light, as it were, but we are to reflect the truth. That's going to be one of the key themes hammered in the seven churches. And Jesus will warn that if we do not do that, he will snap our lampstand away. He'll take away the testimony of a church. I hope that never happens to Community Bible Church, but we're going to see when we come to the seven churches, there is application on four levels, not only a corporate level, but one of the levels is individual. And God can take your lampstand away. Stop using you by decisions that you make. So with a loud voice, he sees these seven golden lampstands. Notice, and in the middle of the lampstands, verse 13, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching down to the feet, and girded across his chest 
with a golden sash. Praise God, John sees Jesus and he sees him standing in the middle of the churches. And I am glad that that's where he stands. On the one hand, he is the omnipresent God. On the other hand, he is still in his human body. So he can be omnipresent and localized. And I know because the scripture says it, that this morning he is here. For wherever two or more are gathered in my name, he said, I am right there in their midst. And so in one sense, he's everywhere. In another sense, he is right here as we gather this morning in his name. Now people tell me, well, you know, I don't go to church. I can, I can worship at home or I can worship out on the golf course on Sunday morning. Or I can worship out there in my boat. You know, get close to God. Well, I suppose you can worship anywhere. You can crawl in your closet this week and worship the living God. But that is no substitute for gathering on the Lord's day. You say, I can't find a healthy church. Then get into the best church you can or get some other like-minded people and start one. But don't live in disobedience and forsake your assembling together on the Lord's day. God's people are to get together on Sunday. And we're told here in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man clothed in a robe. You see that phrase, Son of Man. That's an important designation. It's one of the terms we studied, if you remember, in the book of Daniel. It's one of the terms that describes the Messiah. Remember in Daniel 7, we saw the Ancient of Days and that marvelous vision in Daniel 7. This is why I said Daniel is really important. Some of you are new to the church. Go back. It's all online. There's a brother right there. He's listening to the whole book of Daniel. He's only been saved less than a month and he's listening to the whole book of Daniel already. Praise God for that. Some of you would go home and Turn off that boob tube and plug in, search the scriptures app and start listening to the book of Daniel. It will open up the revelation to you. But if you remember, the ancient of days, God the Father comes up to the Son of Man and he gives him a marvelous kingdom. Three key terms in the Bible. Son of Man, Son of God, Son of David. Son of God emphasizes his deity. Son of David emphasizes that he is a king, that he will literally sit on David's throne, just as the angel Gabriel told Mary in Luke 1. And he is the son of man, which is used to emphasize his humanity, especially in his suffering. 81 times in the gospel, the term son of man is used. It's Christ's favorite description of himself. In Isaiah 9 and verse 6, all three of them prophetically were brought together. Remember, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. That's his humanity. That's his title, son of man. And the government will rest on his shoulders. That speaks of his royalty. That speaks of his kingship. That's him as son of David. That is yet to be fulfilled. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That speaks of his deity. A baby is coming, and it's no ordinary baby. The baby's name is going to be called Mighty God because he is the Son of God. He is God in human flesh. And so to say any of those titles was to say all three of those titles. If you said to a Jew today who's orthodox and knows his Bible, he understands that the terms are used interchangeably. Remember on that occasion when Caiaphas put the Lord Jesus under oath, and he said, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And so when asked if he was the Son of God, Jesus responds by saying he's the Son of Man. Notice, he quotes Daniel chapter 7 in the text. You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, 
You shall see the Son of Man, that's Daniel 7, 13, sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas understood when he said he was the Son of Man, he was claiming to be the Son of God, and so what did he do? He tore his robes, and he said, you blasphemed. So for 2,000 years, people have wondered what Jesus looks like. You see the medieval art, and he's rather a glum, gloody, gloomy, grim person with a, usually a dinner plate behind his head, and, and uh, you know, they've got pictures of him either in a cradle or on a cross or, you know, all kinds of pictures. And more recently, you know, you see pictures of Jesus. He's that happy-go-lucky athletic kind. Actually, there's only one description of him in the Old Testament in his earthly life. Isaiah said, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. That doesn't mean he was ugly or anything like that. It just means, just means that there was nothing outwardly that would have drawn people to him and say, I want to follow you. But here's John, and he gives us a picture of the Lord Jesus, not walking in the dusty streets of Jerusalem. And for some of us, that's the only picture we have of him. But God wants to lift up your vision. And he wants to give you a picture of his son now in heaven. And he does that metaphorically by the way he dresses his son. And we will see these like and as phrases all the way through. These assimilates. And when you understand what the symbol means, then you literally believe what is said. Notice verse 13. I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching down to the feet. This description of his robe and his sash speak of his superiority and of his care. Now, the word that is used here for robe is the Greek word podere. And outside of the Bible, it was the kind of robe that only a king could wear. Inside of the Bible, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which most Jews read in the first century because they lost their ability to speak Hebrew, called the Septuagint, LXX in your margin. And the Septuagint, the word pote, ray, was used of the robe the high priest would wear. And notice, in addition, he wore a golden sash. And that's exactly, by the way, what the high priest wore. He was clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. He is underscoring that Jesus is our great high priest. That he has not forgotten these believers and these seven churches and the churches today, another awful persecution this past week just seems never to end. God has not forgotten his people. He is interceding. He is the high priest who is able to save forever, Hebrews 7 says, those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them he is our great high priest, one who can sympathize with our weaknesses, one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And so when you think of Jesus, John will display him in three offices, prophet, priest, 
and King. He is our priest who forever lives to make intercession for us. He is the prophet. He will speak with absolute authority and someday he will come and reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But here his, his robe speaks of his superiority and his care for you. In addition, I want you to see his head and his hair. It speaks of his eternality and his purity, his holiness. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His head and his hair were white like snow, remember? In Daniel 7.14, the one who had that designation of himself, it was the Ancient of Days. It was God the Father. His white hair suggesting his eternality, his glory. And here it is used of the Son of Man because the Son of Man is the Father's equal. And the word for white is the word lukos. It means a bright, glorious, shining light. And here it is used as it is all the way through the Revelation. We will find ourselves in white robes someday to speak of the holiness that God will give to you, that he imputes to your account, that you will realize in a glorified body fully, but that Jesus has because it's part of his makeup. His head is like white snow. That speaks of his eternality with no beginning or end, but it also speaks of his purity. Uh, the prophet said, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be red like wool. King David in Psalm 51, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So when you see terms like white as snow, like pure will, you are speaking of absolute purity, and that is who the Son of God is. Notice the third aspect of his character is seen in his dress. His eyes, which speak of his insight in his discernment. Hang on, his eyes were like a flame of fire. When he looks, he looks with discernment. And we will see these expressions all the way in chapter 1, then taken out of chapter 1 and applied to the seven churches. And when God uses this expression in the second chapter, we're going to see that the Son of Man who is walking through a particular local church will see right through them. Now, you may think that you have some kind of barrier over your heart today, but there's a window on your heart, and it's not stained glass, and God can see right through, and he can see all of your motives and all of your thoughts and what's going on in your head right now with his divine x-ray vision. You can hide from your mate what you've done. You can hide from your pastor, but none of us can hide from Almighty God. And if he were to walk up and down these aisles as he will walk through one of the churches, what would he see this morning? He looks at our motives. He looks at our plans. He looks at our desires. And so it's not by accident that the same designation given of the Father with his eyes is now given here of the Son. God is a holy God, and He imparts holiness on those who trust in and commit themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. When we believe in Jesus as our Savior, when He looks at us, He no longer sees our sins and our sin nature. Rather, He sees us clothed in the righteousness of His Son. As such, when we believe, the Bible tells us we have eternal life. Not we will have, but we have eternal life. That means we are changed from the inside. And although we may still stumble and we may still have years left on the earth, 
God is able to use us for His glory as He fills us with His Spirit so we can be vessels fit for His use. To find out more about what it means to be saved, call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and ask for the free booklet and message, Would You Like God as Your Friend? This presentation will explain what it means to be saved, and if you've already trusted in Christ as your Savior, it will help you explain to others their need for a Savior. Our phone number again is 877-787-7478. You can also find the message, Would You Like God as Your Friend, on our website, searchthescriptures.org, or by using the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets. However you contact us, you can also listen to any of the messages in our series on the Revelation, as well as Dr. Brogy's entire history of messages and studies. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude the vision of Patmos. Join us then as we search the scriptures.